Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, the, the, the love of Christ is, is beyond marvelous. And I know, it, at least I am, am just beyond pitiful. And Lord, in, in our pride, in our, our worldly longings, in, in everything that are that our natural mind and body just craves, Lord, we're we're pitiful. And you would forgive us. And not only forgive us, but make us your own, adopt us into your family. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make much of yourself in this text today that that you've inspired. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a friend who is a, I would call him, uh, and I've, I've made fun of him for as much in the past, for being a dialectical chameleon. Um, and here's what I mean. He has a plain Midwestern accent which is to say he speaks English the correct way. Uh, you know, the natural way, the way God intended when he made English at the Tower of Babel. And, um, you know, before the Brits ruined it. And, um, but once he's around someone with any accent at all, he immediately starts talking like them. And it's annoying, it's absurd, it drives everyone nuts. And maybe a more relatable accent, if, or a, a relatable example, if you don't know someone who is a dialectical chameleon like this guy, is we've all been around someone who's gone on a study abroad or a short-term service trip, ministry trip somewhere, and they come back and all of a sudden like they have a different wardrobe like they play five new instruments you didn't even know existed, and they constantly say, well, in the country I was last in, they do it this way, as though like they've just reached this moment of enlightenment. And, and both of these examples, the, the absurd person who's just come back from a study abroad or the dialectical uh, chameleon, if you will, are benign examples of what we are all prone to. And here's what it is. We are all prone to being cultural sponges that soak up whatever's around us. And sometimes this can be fun. We learn about new musical styles that have unique rhythms and syncopation. We find culinary masterpieces like casserole. No, that's what people find when they come here. But it also includes elements of ideologies and worldviews, things of honor and shame, power and fear, right and wrong. And sometimes there can be some helpful twists to that, but, but other times it can just lead us to, to places we ought not go. And the Old Testament in particular warns, we see God warning his people over and over and over again with basically saying, 
you're a bunch of cultural sponges and you need to clear the land and make the land about me and my worship and my glory and my covenant promise to you and your covenant promise to me. And if you do anything less than that, you're going to be led astray to awful places. And what we see through the book of Judges is what many call the Canaanization of Israel. And the Canaanization of Israel is basically the people of God taking on the culture, the characteristics, the religions, and the ideologies and attributes of the cultures in the land that they were meant to drive out. The Canaanization of Israel. And it's a problem. In chapter 1 of Judges, at the top of the downward spiral, we see it that as they are driving out the nations, they are already using the methods of the Canaanites, treating the Canaanites as the Canaanites have treated others. And it's only gone downhill from there. Uh, commentator Daniel Block, who I'll refer to more than once today, as it, um, says that the individual we're looking at today, Jephthah, gives us an illustration and an, enca an encapsulation in one individual of the moral degeneration and canonization of the society. And as someone who knows that he has far too many favorite passages in the Bible, I know it, like I, I get made fun of because it, it seems like I have about 150 favorite Psalms. Um, you, guys, you guys caught that good Bible trivia <laughs> reference there. I'm really proud of you. But of all the favorite passages I have in Scripture, I just got to be honest, Jephthah's one of my least favorite. This is just a tough passage. And Jephthah is a complex character. Some, and, and one level, he's really simple. Uh, and then as we look at the whole canon of Scripture, he becomes a bit more complex. But what we're going to see as we unfold these next two chapters, the Judges 11 and 12, is we're going to see four conversations that Jephthah has. And through those four conversations, we're going to see four cautions as we would seek to not be canonized ourselves, if we will. And, and four cautions against the canonization of Israel, thing, things that we, we see along the slippery slope. And so the first conversation is with the men of Gilead. In the men of Gilead, we have this warning that we should be more concerned with godliness than circumstantial solutions. So the men of Gilead, if you remember where we left off last week, the uh, Ammonites are encamping against Gilead, the the. the people of God have, have cried out, God, we've sinned. God says, I'm hearing it no more. They cry out again, but this time they turn from their gods to serve only the Lord. The Lord is impatient with their misery. And then as the Ammonites are assembling and encamping and getting ready for battle, the men of Gilead, instead of saying, God, what shall we do? Start saying, well, who's the guy that's going to fight for us? So the men of Gilead, they come to this guy named Jephthah, and Jephthah has a pretty questionable background. His dad is Gilead, the Gileadite. Um, 
Not great naming, but it's what they got. But it's what we assume is that being named Gilead in, in, in the land of Gilead is, is that perhaps there was a bit of nobility in his bloodline. And that, and that Gilead himself had a lot of sons, had many sons, if you will. And um, one son in particular was born of a prostitute, and that was Jephthah. And his, Jephthah's half-brothers did not like the idea that they would have to share their inheritance with a guy who seemed illegitimate. And so they kicked him out of the land, and it seems everyone kicked him out of the land. So when we pick up the conversation, so Jephthah goes to the land of Tob, surrounds himself, just like Abimelech did, with a group that the book of Judges calls worthless fellows. And again, if you're in the book of Judges and you're described as worthless, it's not good. It's not good. These are exceptionally bad folk. And so the Gileadites decide, we need Jephthah, who's developed a bit of a reputation for being a good fighter. We need him to lead them. So they come up to Jephthah. They're wearing their Make Gilead Great Again hats, and they say, Jephthah, will you help us? So let's pick up in verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when, we, when you were in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now so that you may go with us, fight against the Ammonites and be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went to, with the elders of Gilead and to the people and made him head over, and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah's story, as, as I've noted, bears a lot of similarities to Abimelech, son of Gideon. He's not son of one of the wives of his father and has a questionable relationship with his brothers. Whereas Abimelech murdered his brothers, Jephthah is cast out by his brothers. And we have, uh, they refuse, one, one there's, a, there's a child born to a prostitute, which is a problem. And we don't know the exact nature of her work, but what we do know is when we look at the historical and cultural context is there was a whole lot of prostitution happening around Baal and Asherah worship. So there's this distinct possibility, there's this question in the mind of the reader, is this, is this part of pagan worship that Jephthah came about? Maybe, maybe not. Either way, it was a child out of wedlock, of which God's word said a lot, and then his brothers refused him inheritance, which is, again, against the law of Moses. And so while there's a lot of things we can speculate and a lot of things we don't know, just the opening paragraph gives us a good picture of the spiritual climate of this day. That people are referring to the Lord 
and yet they do not know the Lord. And we're going to see that characteristic within Jephthah as well as this, as this unfolds. And, and really to be able to, to speak about God without knowing God is to, is to bring God into it in vain. And it is to use the name of the Lord in vain. And it is dangerous. Jephthah stands as a unique judge within the book of Judges. He is not risen up by the Lord, but he is found by the people. He is the people's judge. And so they call and they say, we want you to come back. Oh, why don't you return to us? Jephthah goes, only if I can have instead of my inheritance, I can have it all. And they say, you got it. And so they invoke the name of the Lord, but it's interesting, there's no priest, there's no altar, there's no sacrifice. This is most likely done before an army and a group of citizens instead of with priests and Levites. In fact, through chapters 11 and 12, we're going to see in verse 29 that the Spirit of the Lord does come upon Jephthah. But outside of that, the Lord appears to be merely referred to and is not particularly active and not sincerely called upon and certainly not known. So here the men of Gilead are, pleased to find a good fighter to lead them. And as Daniel Block points out, Jephthah and the men of Gilead used the God's name, but, his godly, but true godliness is yet to be seen. And so we come to the next conversation. And that conversation is with the king of Ammon. And the caution here is to not confuse good words with good spirituality. So the king of Ammon, he says, he goes, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wage war on you because your land is my land, but not in the happy song kind of way. It's just your land is my land, and I'd like you off of it now. And if you don't remove yourself, I will forcibly remove you. And so Jephthah writes a letter back to the king. He sends a conversation back to the king, and it starts in verse uh, 12, I, uh, in verse Verse thir uh, 13, because the messengers of uh, Jephthah sends by way of messengers, because Israel, on coming up out of Egypt, took away my land. This is what the Ammonite says. Arnon of the Jabbok and the Jordan, now restore it peaceably. Give me my land back, and there's no need for bloodshed. Jephthah, verse 14, sends messengers to the king of Ammon and said to them, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab and the Ammonites, but when they came... Up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea, came up to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through. But the king of Edom said, uh, would not listen. So then they sent to the king of Moab and he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness. They went around Edom and the land of Moab and arrived east of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab or, or the Arnon. Uh, was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. Israel said, please let us pass through to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through its territory. So they gathered all their people together and camped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. 
And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all the people to the hand of Israel, and they defeated him. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country. And they took possession of the territory of the Amorites, and then Arnon to the Jabbok and the wilderness. And all of you guys know your Bible maps so well, you're tracking exactly what's happening. <laughs> so then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives to you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages? And he goes on. And he concludes by saying, I have not sinned against you. And you do me wrong by making war on me, so let the Lord judge and decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. This seems out of place in the book of Judges. Jephthah does what any sensible person does. He's really sending a letter trying to avoid war. He's giving diplomacy a shot. King of Ammon says, hey, it's always been ours. Why don't you get off? And then we have this remarkable thing that hasn't happened yet in the first 11 and a half chapters of Judges. Someone recounts the deeds of the Lord. Remember, Judges opens. They had forgotten this stuff. They had forgotten the law of God. They had forgotten God had brought them out of Egypt. How in the world does Jephthah know any of this? Apparently, there's some Hebrew school eking out an existence somewhere in the neighborhood of Gilead. And so what Jephthah does is he fact-checks the history of the Ammonite king. He says, actually, it never really was your land. It was someone else's. And God gave it to us from them. And then he does the right, faithful thing of an Israelite. He says, who are you to take what the God of heaven has given to us? And then he does something really weird. He says, why don't you let us be content with what our God has given us and you be content with what Chemosh has given you? This is weird for two reasons. One, the Ammonites didn't worship Chemosh. The Moabites did. And he would have known that. And two, why would he give any sovereign credit to another deity as a faithful Israelite? Why would he do that? See, there's this perplexing thing about Jephthah, and this is the whole canon of Scripture I was talking about. Hebrews 11 lists him right at the end, right before David and Samuel. He, they list Jephthah. And I've, I've never fully understood why. Jephthah seems much more problematic than someone you would want to aspire to. There's, there's no Sunday school songs about I want to be a Jephthah. If anyone has ever written, that person should be outcast, whoever writes that song. <laughs> but Jephthah was absolutely confident that the God of heaven had given Israel this land and therefore it was theirs. And he acted on that confidence and he acted on that faithfulness. 
And there's not a person in the list in, in Hebrews 11 that we can look at and say, oh, that is someone who morally I want to follow lockstep. We have reservations with all of them. I think we'll probably have a little more on that later. But Jephthah, here he is. He, he's given right credit to God. He's messed up the deity of the Ammonites. And he said, hey, why don't you just stay in your land and we'll stay in ours? And there's a bit of pride and there's a bit of contempt. And it's certainly received with those as the Ammonites said, well, let's just fight it out and see what happens. And in all that Jephthah got right, he misses that God is the one true God. He's confident, but he falls short. He has some good words, but there's not really good godly spirituality there. And this is a great flash-in-the-pan letter he sent. It would have gone viral at the time. But we need to be very aware to not give our hearts, to not give our imaginary, to not give our affection to those who just have good flash-in-the-pan moments, but to give them only to the Lord and to entrust ourselves to those who lead well, to those who don't use the name of the Lord as something to be wielded as a piece of rhetoric, but as the truly good, one and only God of heaven. And here, Jephthah makes a theological error. It points to his canonization. It points to his Moabization. And it should serve as a red flag. But red flags can be hard to see when they're behind bravado that has some good words to them. And so we get to the third conversation. And this is the conversation that Jephthah's known most for, and it's his conversation with God. And the caution here for us, as we need to stave off the worldliness as it would come into our lives, as it would come into the church, is that we need to be confidently satisfied with all the Lord has given us. And this is the fatal flaw of Jephthah, is he was not confidently satisfied. Look at how it starts out in verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah as he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah to Gilead passed on to the Ammonites. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. This is the ultimate spoiler alert in the Old Testament. The moment the reader sees the Spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah, they're like, oh, those Ammonites have it coming. They are going to lose. We know it. We see it over and over again. We're going to see it through the rest of the Old Testament. When the Spirit of the Lord comes on a person, all, there, there's nothing else matters at that point. The enemies are toast. And so the Spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah, and he goes on this recruiting tour through the countryside, gets together this army who are following a man who has the Spirit of the Lord upon him, 
And then he heads to the Ammonites. And all of his bravado. And all of his confidence that he has earned by winning fight after fight with him and his worthless men of Tob. But more than that confidence, he has the spirit of the almighty God upon him. God graciously gave him that spirit. It's astonishing. It's shocking that the spirit of God would fall on someone whose own society is like, we don't like this guy. But we'll tolerate him because we need his power. We don't like this guy. We don't think he has any right with us except that he's the only one that we see who can beat the Ammonites, so we're just going to put all of our eggs in the Jephthah basket. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. And this is where I want to say, God, what in the world were you thinking, putting your spirit on a guy like that? Why would you ever do that, O oh Lord? And even as I've wrestled with that this week, I feel like the Lord has had to, uh, I don't even know if it's gentle. <laughs> the Lord has had to remind me why in the world would the Lord put his Holy Spirit inside someone as worthless and pitiful as me? Is my pride any less objectionable than Jephthah's? Are the times I've gotten God's word wrong any less objectionable any less objectionable than Jephthah's? Is my sin somehow more palatable to the holy God of heaven than that of Jephthah? It's no more palatable. God is merciful. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So the Spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah. This is like Popeye eating the spinach. You know the battle is over at this point. But Jephthah doesn't. Jephthah doesn't know the battle's over yet. He doesn't have the confidence in the Spirit of the Lord. So Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, verse 30. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt, for a burnt offering. Was a vow to the Lord on the eve of battle out of line? No. Was this vow to the Lord on the eve of battle out of line? Absolutely. There's other vows. Lord, if you give my enemies into my hands, this will, the, the enemies will serve as an offering to you. If you, you know, we will serve the Lord this day. We will teach of your faithfulness to coming generations. The spoils will be that of the Lord's. You know, those are good vows. God, if you let me survive, and I return home in peace, then whatever comes out of my doors first 
I'm going to burn it for you. Here's the deal. One thing the people of Jephthah's time had in common with us, they didn't keep sheep in their house. They didn't keep goats in their house. They didn't keep oxen in their house. That wasn't a thing they did. Like that was one of the ways we could say they're relatively normal. They lacked indoor plumbing, but they didn't keep livestock in their house. We had that in common. They kept people in their house. When Jephthah made this, he knew it would be a person. There's a pretty high level of confidence that a person would come out. I'm sure he was hoping it would be a servant or a neighbor. But this points pretty staunchly to the canonization of Jephthah. That the idea for the nations to offer a human sacrifice out of gratitude to their deity was actually pretty normal. And Jephthah here treated God of heaven like the gods of man. He was an Israelite by blood and word, but a Canaanite by lifestyle. And what's interesting here is the, is the battle almost takes second stage here. The vow becomes what happens the rest. I mean, there's, there's barely a, a couple sentences. Jephthah crossed the, Anamite, crossed the Ammonites to fight them. The Lord gave them into his hand. And then it goes into how far he struck them down for the next verse, and that's it. And then what follows after the brief account of the battle, almost as if it hadn't happened at all, almost reads in slow motion, Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. We don't have time to get in to the objectification of his own daughter here. Oh, you're, the, you're my problem now because you came out of the house first. It's not my problem for making that vow to the Lord. I never should have. And had I really known his word, I never would have made that vow to begin with. But since I only knew the part of the word that really benefited me, I made that vow. He doesn't throw it on himself. You have become the problem of this. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do according to me to what is good, to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. He said, go, sent her away for two months. She departed with her companions. And they wept for her virginity on the mountains. And on the, at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went out year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. So he fulfills his vow, giving her two months to weep that she would never grow up, that she would never have a family. 
Bloch points out that he did this vow to secure his own victory and peace. And the vow ended up removing his bloodline from the face of the earth as he had to sacrifice his only child for his own safety. There's a major and tragic difference between knowing some of God's word and knowing God's heart through his word. Jephthah acted in the confidence that this was God's land that God had given them. But he also had a superstitious view of God, not a grace-filled view. He wasn't satisfied with the spirit of the Lord resting on him. That wasn't enough. He needed skin in the game. He didn't satisfy, satisfy himself with the word of God, but instead he put God to the test. He didn't satisfy himself with the perfect law of God, or he would have known that in Leviticus 5, there was an allowance to get him out of this rash vow. If you make a rash vow to the Lord, offer an acceptable sacrifice in its place. Repent of your sin. But he didn't do that. Instead, he burned his daughter. When a person contents himself with knowing about God instead of knowing God himself, they miss his goodness. They miss the freedom of Christ. They miss the fullness of life. And in the end, they're still ruled by their sin. So we get now to the fourth conversation, and that's the conversation with Ephraim. Ephraim, again, is very discontented with the fact that they didn't get to go have a fight. This is the same thing they did to Gideon. Why didn't you include us? Well, Gideon played a little psychology with him. Well, Ephraim, you're just too good to have this fight with us. I saved the best for you. But as Dale Ralph Davis points out, Jephthah wasn't much for psychology. Instead, he abandons all diplomatic subtlety and reverts right back to his ways, him and the men of Tob, and they kill 42,000 of the men of Ephraim. And they had a little test because they, they fight against it. And Ephraim realized they weren't going to win, so they would go and try and surrender themselves. But people had accents back then, just like now. And if someone from Ephraim, verse 5 of chapter 12, said, well, let me go over to Gilead and say, and, and, but if they would say, are you an Ephraimite? He would say, no. And they would say, well, then say Shibboleth. And the Ephraimite would say, Sibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. And they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. They, they, this would be like us capturing Boston. And when the Bostonians would say, hey, I come in peace, I'm one of you. We'd say, well, can you just tell me to go park my car? Go park your car. And, I mean, it's just all the cards are on the table then. Do not tear down the covenant people of God for your own sake and your own security. That's exactly what Jephthah did. His, his big battle won. He's ruling Gilead, his daughter dead. And he ravages fellow covenant people of God. This all started with a canonized group of leaders 
who wanted to turn from their idols completely to the Lord, but instead of actually fully doing that, they turned to a fellow canonized leader. And when we look for man-centered solutions, we get man-centered outcomes. Do you hear that? When we're looking for man-centered solutions, we get man-centered outcomes. When we're looking for someone who checks just enough boxes of spirituality while looking away from what is clear and identifiable worldliness, what we are doing is looking for a man-centered solution. And when we do that, we get man-centered outcomes. Now, we've talked a lot about the canonization of Israel, the canonization of God's people. But what we really need to talk about is the Americanization of the church. That we live in a culture that is fallen and depraved and has idols. And those idols come into the church and into God's people. And some of those idols are really easy for us to see. They're idols that cause people to say that this word is not relevant anymore. They're idols that cause us to say that the world has set forth a creed on sexuality and we should follow it. But there are also idols of materialism that lead us to withhold justice from the oppressed. And there are idols of pride within the American spirit of independence that tells us your problem is not my problem. And there are idols of political idolatry that we place far too much hope in someone who says godish things but whose lifestyle does not bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit or any real knowledge of the heart of God or his word caring more about someone's political alignment with ours than the fact that they may or may not worship the same God as us. That we care more about what box they check on a Tuesday in November than whether or not they have bowed their knee to Jesus as Lord and confessed their sin. Americanization creeps into the church through nationalism through words of America is the hope for the world, my country, my way, things not centered on the kingdom of heaven, but on the aesthetic appeal of my front lawn and my retirement portfolio. Not focused on the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitude and the blessings of being poor in spirit, of being meek, of being persecuted, of being one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. of knowing far more about the Constitution than the Word of God. We need to guard ourselves against that. It's interesting and worthwhile. There's a, a lot of people draw a compare and contrast of Jephthah and Jesus. They were both despised and rejected. Some questionable pregnancies. But that's where we need to shift to the contrast. Jephthah secured his own security, his own safety and peace at the cost of many. Killing his only child, 
for himself. Christ was despised and rejected, but instead of being prideful, he was humble. Instead of knowing about God, he knew God. And instead of seeking to preserve his own life at the expense of many, he gave himself and the Father in heaven gave him as a sacrifice for many. We are made as people to walk with God, but we have strong leanings towards worldly culture, and that worldly culture takes on many different forms, and sometimes it puts on sheep's clothing. And so we absolutely need to look at Christ. We need to not be satisfied with a shallow Christ-likeness, a shallow faith, but we need to seek deep Christ-likeness, deep knowledge of God's word, deep character, and call out the facades and the fake platitudes where we see them. Call out taking God's name in vain by trying to invoke it as though it were a tool of rhetoric by those who do not have faith in him who do not display the fruit of the Spirit. We should live out the Beatitudes, know the words of Christ well. I pray that instead of the indictment that the church has been Americanized, that the world would look at those who belong to the body of Christ and say, I don't know what has happened, but that person appears to have been heavenized in our longing to soak up a culture, would we know the culture of the kingdom of God through his word, through his abiding spirit, and live that out in such a way that instead of other believers rightly saying to us, you look like the culture, that the world would look at us and say, I don't recognize what's going on there. That the culture of our true home, the kingdom of God, would pour out of us in our words, in our humility, in our humble service to one another, in our pursuit of a justice that this world can only dream of. And it's going to happen by us being satisfied with nothing less than being led by the Son of God as we follow him as our shepherd and Lord. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy and magnificent and wonderful, and Lord, we are so humbled that you would call us your own, that you would save us from our sins, that you would redeem us, who feel oftentimes as unredeemable, that you would share your spirit with us. Lord, I pray that we would be a congregation of people who have been deeply heavenized and that your light would go out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.